Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Alex Kruger, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Bilal Sawari, an Afghan journalist who left Kabul after it fell to the Taliban last year. He's now in Canada, but continues to cover Afghanistan from afar, amplifying the voices of many of those Afghans who were unable to flee. Well, welcome to World Review. Tell us a bit about what the past year has been like for you. Thank you for having me. It is so painful that it was today last year that I was forced to leave my country. And I was just posting on Twitter before I came to speak to you. That journey, the sad journey, was the one where we lost everything, basically, for nothing. So it has been extremely painful to watch Afghanistan suffer on the economic front, to see people struggle for a loaf of bread, to see massive economic issues. But it is equally heartbreaking to learn that your own cousins and family members cannot build their dreams of becoming the next engineers or doctors because these girls are quite simply not allowed to go for secondary education. And over the last one year, we have seen so many contradicting stances and statements from the Taliban. Schools are opening, schools are not opening. There are cultural barriers, there are ideological issues. And these are all contradictions. I was just reading yesterday a statement from the Taliban's much feared and also notorious Ministry of Vice and Virtue that they were warning uh, residents of District 7 in Kabul city to not play music or to not allow musicians and their weddings. And that is an area that I grew up as a kid in the 1990s where we suffered because of the civil war. And in many ways, I feel that we are basically not able to escape our very painful past, which was not a past too distant. And I feel like Afghanistan is going backwards in 21st century. Tell me about the run-up to the 15th of August 2021 and the day Kabul fell. How was it to be 
in Afghanistan in those weeks, watching the Taliban advance and then watching them finally come into the city. It is interesting because on August the 10th, I accompanied a number of my international colleagues to cover uh, what I would say were several thousand residents who had fled the fighting in places like Badakhshan, Takhar, Kunduz, and Baghlan, way up in the north when these major provincial capitals were the target of uh, massive Taliban attacks and airstrikes were carried out. And I remember meeting this one farmer from Chardara district in Kunduz province. And I asked him, like, what could he bring with himself? And he said, only a pair of clothes. And he said he had lost his beans and all the harvest that he had worked hard for. And in that moment, I got very emotional because it took me back to the 1990s when I had gone through such an experience. And when I left that park, which was located between two very busy, you know, roads in the middle of nowhere in this dusty neighborhood of Herkhana in that sort of hot August time of the year. But the traffic jams were like extremely chaotic and I got so depressed and I had such a massive headache because I thought to myself, how many more generations could go through this agony and pain before Afghans could have some sort of respite? And little did I know that in five, day, five days' time, Taliban would basically take over the rest of the country and that we would be forced to have the fate of that former. And for me, like for the second time. So when Kabul fell suddenly and I was in my office, which was next door to my home, most of the government officials at the very highest echelons were some of my very closest friends for like almost 20 years when they were like nobody. And one of the very first people, Alex, that walked into my office was my next door neighbor, this gentleman who I thought was a normal person. His daughters went to school, his kids went to school. I had prevented the, the intelligence service from jailing him after they arrested him one night in a night raid. Obviously, he was my next door neighbor, and he literally introduced himself as the Taliban's intelligence operator for that area for many years. And he had a notebook with himself where he had detailed list of who was coming to my home for all these years. But then he tapped me on my shoulder and he said, don't worry, it's now my turn to basically protect you. And, but that evening and the next day and the next day, more and more Taliban fighters and commanders would come. So I had to get in touch with all the Taliban that I knew over the years. And literally every single Talib that you spoke to agreed that no one should be able to get into people's home, that this is not allowed, but they could not control these fighters and commanders. And I was quite scared because I was the face of the war reporting, which is never appreciated. And for many years, there, there was many hit lists, you know, going around on Facebook and social media. And my name appeared on many. Many of my colleagues were killed. So at, at that exact moment, not only was I so sad and heartbroken for everything that had just crumbled, but I also feared for my own safety and more importantly, for the safety of my family. Because I was in Kabul in 2001 when the Americans removed the Taliban and I saw how chaotic things were. And then thanks to my colleagues, thanks to my college in the U.S., the Middlebury College, thanks to ABC News, who I had worked with for quite some time. And I remember making that journey from my home to the Serena Hotel 
And I swear to God, I was like, like the most scary journey that I could have ever had because this was a city that I knew it street by street, inch by inch, neighborhood by neighborhood. And yet I did not feel safe anywhere. So I remember Ian Panel, my former BBC colleague who was with the ABC News on the ground, who extended sort of his massive helping hand to all of our colleagues, went out of his way literally to do that for us. He had one very wise advice for me. He said, stop doing interviews on TV until you're out. So that's what I did. And I was hiding in the Serena Hotel. And my very close relatives and friends would be like calling me, how are you? Are you good? And I had to basically lie to them. Oh, I'm just in the field gathering some stuff. I'm just doing some interviews. And then I remember the last few sort of steps that I took after the interview towards the Qatari Emir is like humongous, you know, plane, C-17. I think I cried. I looked it towards my own neighborhood and city one more time. And I felt like I was trying to give a hug to the mountains of Kabul city, to the city that I actually am not sure when or if myself and our friends would go back. And I thought perhaps that those were like some of the most painful steps because I have hopped on a lot of the military planes exactly from that side accompany American and Afghan officials for embeds and for trips to the provinces. And I think I saw a lot of teary eyes on that flight, which was full of colleagues from civil society, media, government. And it was a brain drain sort of tsunami in that moment. What is your view now of the Americans, the British, others who were involved in the international presence in Afghanistan, who were there for 20 years and then left. Absolutely. We need to park the blame for everyone. I think if you look at the international community, in particular the Americans, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, I think I found them both in a hurry. No one disagreed that the Americans could or should leave. Obviously, they had that right to withdraw their troops. But in the manner that they left and in the sort of way that Trump, for example, conducted the Doha exit deal with the Taliban, I think was the start of the collapse of the Afghan state in particular, because what you had was the Doha gatherings and meetings and negotiations were obviously behind closed doors. The Afghan people, and in my view, the American people in the Western uh, societies had very little transparency what Mr. Khalilzad and many others were discussing with the Taliban. Our fate in Afghanistan was being sealed behind closed doors, not by Afghans, but by American and Western envoys. It was a piece of paper. I also believe that the moment President Biden announced that he was leaving come hell or high water, as he had famously said in 2011 to meet the press, was the time when people in Afghanistan started taking insurance at a village district level, the movers and shakers of the police, the intelligence, the army. So we had that. On the Afghan side, I feel that there was a massive disconnect between the battlefield and the leadership in Kabul. The battlefield reality where I embedded with many of these commanders like General Sami Sadat, the young general who was leading the corps in Helmand, uh, to Kandahar and Arvandab River Valley to the north. You came back to Kabul and you got shocked because the battlefield reality was not what 
people wanted to project in Kabul. I feel that was also when Afghanistan lost because more and more coffins went back. If you compare that with the Taliban, they were very effective. They reached out to the families of Taliban soldiers. They delivered rice and cooking oil and everything. On the Afghan side, money was stolen. On the Afghan side, even coffins were not available for these guys to be basically buried in. People are quite angry, understandably. But the Taliban were also party to this problem, a big party. And when people talk about the current situation and, and the war, we must not forget that Taliban were the belligerents. They were a deadly party to this conflict. But what I also believe that the Taliban had a unique opportunity on August the 15th. They could have just appealed uh, to talent, to capacity. They would have chosen the path to reconciliation, which they did not. And we continue to see that the Taliban have not adopted to the new realities, to the social transformation of the country. This is not the 1990s. It's a different generation. People have smartphones. People are connected to the world. And under the Taliban, the poppy crops are appearing everywhere and anywhere. And in, in the fact that there are heroin factories, the fact that meth is now processed in Afghanistan, obviously it was happening under the Republic, but not on this large scale. So I feel that the region will feel the issues at some stage. The threat for the region is bigger, eventually for Europe in terms of drugs and terrorism and refugees. In Afghanistan, quite sadly, despite all the efforts, the blood and treasure invested, is once more a failed state. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman, in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge, Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Do you think the Taliban could have done things differently? You say they, they had a choice on the 15th of August. Do you think they could have chosen a different path, that there was some option for reconciliation? That seems quite optimistic. Absolutely. Before August 15th, the Taliban and the Afghan government both should have respected the wishes of the Afghan people. We saw the peace march by people from Helmand, these activists walking for days through landmines, through front lines, through all these dangerous areas. And you had literally calls for ceasefires from villages to cities, from districts to provincial capitals. Obviously, that wasn't done. And the Taliban were very adamant on a military takeover. But once they did that, in those chaotic sort of last few days of August when the former president fled, they had that chance to end their crackdown against the Afghan people. They had that chance to say, okay, we are fighters. We are the current de facto rulers, but we can't run the finance ministry. We cannot run the central bank. Let's not have this mullahization of Afghanistan. Let's not appoint a mullah for every single position. And let's not also forget that over the last few months, there have been very significant developments. The killing of Ayman al-Zawairi in the heart of Kabul city, housed by the interior minister of the Taliban and his top aides. The mysterious murder of Abdul Wali, a top notorious brutal TTP leader in Paktika province under the Taliban. The fact that the Taliban have made so many promises to Uzbekistan on the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, to Tajikistan, which is the Tajik militant group. These things are all going to come and haunt the Taliban because the relationship between Al-Qaeda and these militant groups is extremely deep and fighters and commanders within the Taliban leadership, they see these guys as brothers in arms. After all, look at what is happening. To have a country where people are selling their baby daughters and sons, especially in villages where it never happens, people are leaving them in village mosques and other areas, or to have people sell their body organs in places like Herat, are all clear indications that Afghanistan is sinking deep, deep into all sorts of trouble. There's been a lot of recrimination in the West over what happened in the withdrawal of international forces. Has there been any positive legacy from 
the international presence in Afghanistan for 20 years. I think we lost everything that was there. Obviously, I remember in 2001 when I started working in Afghanistan. Afghanistan was a country that resembled more like a destroyed society. So thousands of kilometers of roads were built, clinics, you had hospitals. You certainly have Afghans having access to mobile phone, to internet, right? Thousands and thousands of Afghans, people like myself, we were able to go to the West, to India, to Malaysia, to UK, to Europe, uh, to Russia, to China, to Pakistan, to come back. Changes were there. At the same time, Afghanistan was a country where corruption was rife. Afghanistan was a money-making opportunity for corrupt and incompetent uh, politicians and government officials in various sort of levels. But also Afghanistan was a country where contractors from the West came in and made money. And in my view, one of the biggest mistakes that we made was not having the Taliban in the Islami in the Bonn Conference in 2001 and two, that we excluded them. And the Americans closed the window on negotiations with the Taliban in the earlier years when they wanted to do that, including people like Mullah Omar, reportedly sent a letter to the former president, Hamid Karzai. So there were a lot of mistakes as well. The airstrikes, targeting weddings and funerals, the night raids, right? But at the same time, the Taliban were equally responsible for the killing of civilians, for the destruction of important sort of infrastructure. And I feel that what we could have done towards the end, we could have secured a successful peace process. And for the West, it would have been a massive victory because for them, the way they abandoned Afghanistan after the Russians were defeated in the 1990s, that could have been avoided. The West could have said, fine, we're leaving, but we're leaving on one condition that Afghans have a peace process. If the West was so adamant, including the United States in particular, on leaving Afghanistan, then they could have said, all right, we don't care about the Taliban. We're leaving. You guys know it's your own country. No one even talks, Alex, anymore about the fact that the Taliban have banned music, that the Taliban have banned all forms of entertainment, the fact that Taliban's vice and virtue is going ne around neighborhoods in Kabul and imposing these bans. Let's also not forget, as a friend rightly observed, that the international community has lowered the bar for the Taliban. They just basically are giving Taliban so many concessions, which in my view is committing the same mistake that we've been committing over the last 20 years with many Afghan governments and other sort of forms of conducting affairs. So finally, Bilal, if I can ask you, what do you think the future holds for Afghanistan? And if I can ask you, what do you think it holds for you? And when might you see Kabul again? The Taliban are definitely facing their own insurgency. First, from the Islamic State, we've seen suicide attacks, we've seen roadside bombs. We have actually also seen the assassinations of Taliban officials. Then you also have, uh, you know, the situation with the former government officials, the insurgencies that they are basically leading up. The irony here is that I was with these people fighting. They were fighting against the Taliban with the help of American air support and American advisors 
literally like 18 months ago, 16 months ago, even 14 months ago. The fact that they are now the insurgency fighting against the ruling Taliban also tells you how quickly sides and things can basically alter in Afghanistan. The Taliban are also struggling of reviving the economy, of keeping the bureaucracy functional, because what they are forgetting that they are now inheriting an Afghanistan in a region that is much more interconnected than what they had in the 1990s. For us, it's a very challenging time because how we stay in the journalism world is one challenge, but it is not a challenge to cover Afghanistan. We have enough skills. I may just be able to do any job that may come in, but I will still continue to give the people of Afghanistan a voice. And many of our colleagues are doing that. Inside the country, we are, we are in contact, we have relationships, even with certain Taliban leaders and commanders. We have to basically be careful because what a government official or a Taliban official gives you, you have to basically make sure that is true. Uh, but at least there's a willingness among some of them. They want to talk to media. And we are working towards the hope that one day we will be able to go back uh, to our country. And when we go back, uh, journalism would be incredibly important. And then we will probably pass it to the next generation, but our job is not done. And we have to make sure that we keep that media alive now because the people of Afghanistan need us today more than ever. They would have needed us to be on the ground, but just because we're not there, this is an Afghanistan where people have WhatsApp and smartphones. This is not the Afghanistan of the 1990s. So we are using all the tools that are available and we're doing as much as we can. Bilal Sawari, thank you. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com forward slash international. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. I'm Alex Kruger. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.